0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another full auditorium today. So good, so good. Hey, we're picking back up today in our series through 1 Samuel that we're calling Royalty. And uh, this spring, it's a case study in Israel's first king, a man named Saul, not to be confused with New Testament Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. But it's interesting, a couple of weeks uh, back, there were uh, three movements. We saw three movements in the rise of Saul to the kingship of Israel. And, and, and now we're seeing three steps uh, downward in the demise of Saul. And uh, these three downward steps occur in chapters 13, 14, and 15. With each step of this downward spiral, Saul makes bigger and bigger uh, stupid mistakes that show us um, that just like the nation of Israel, Paul, I mean Saul does pretty much what seems best to him, what 's right in his eyes rather than in god 's eyes. Now, by the way, just like in the movies we watch, Old Testament storytelling is inclined to show rather than tell. It, it shows us people saying and doing things, but doesn't always tell us if what they're saying and doing is right or wrong. It, it doesn't always tell us if God approves or disapproves. And sometimes you have to work that out for yourself by listening to what they say and do, and then comparing it with the will and word of God as it has been revealed in earlier scripture. You gotta keep that in mind, keep it in mind today. And uh, one more, by the way, in this message, I'm gonna go back to a simple outline that we used in some of the earlier messages, and that is I'm gonna ask two questions today, and the first one is, what's the passage about? What's the story about? And then the second one is, what does this story teach us about God and life And faith. What does it teach us about God and life and faith? So first question is, what's the story about? Story comes from 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. We looked at uh, the first part of the story last week in chapter 13. We're in 14 this week for the second part. It's the story of King Saul's battle with the powerful Philistine army. The Philistines live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and this This nation, this empire, is on par with the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans. They're not a small scale ragtag bunch. They're very powerful. And we're told that the Philistines were a problem for Israel during the whole uh, 42 year reign of Saul. And it wasn't until David's reign that they were completely defeated. Now last week we saw how Saul's son Jonathan took it it upon himself to start a war with Philistia by attacking and defeating a a Philistine outpost near Geba, which in turn brought the wrath of the Philistine army with its 6,000 cavalry and 3,000 chariots and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, brought all that army down on Israel, and now they're camped and they're poised to attack not far from where Saul and his troops are camped. And things go from bad to really, really bad. At one point, Saul had 2,000 uh, soldiers, Jonathan had 1,000. But seeing the massive army ready to grind them into dust, hundreds of men have deserted Saul. And even, some have even switched sides and joined the Philistine army, leaving Saul with only about 600 men. And just as bad, because of of Saul's blatant uh, refusal to obey the word of God that came to him through Samuel the prophet, saw that last week, Samuel walks away from Saul, leaving him with no ability to hear from God as to what he's supposed to do next. And the Philistines are sending out these small raiding parties in all directions, and they're pillaging and plundering and murdering people in towns and villages, and they're hoping To uh, get the Israelites to turn against Saul, be so downhearted that they give up the fight before the fight begins. And then we learn at the end of chapter 13, in verses 19 to 23, we learn that Saul's soldiers don't even have weapons. Only Saul and Jonathan have swords and spears. But Saul's soldiers were equipped with farming tools like plows and picks and axes and sickles. And this really is a no good, very bad day. And at this point, it's pretty much a waiting game. The Philistines are, are, are just waiting for the right time to attack. Things couldn't be worse. Uh, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 14, verse 1. So find your way there, 14.1. I'm going to read some of the story and I'm going to tell some of the story, all right? 14.1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his dad. Saul and his men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around a pomegranate tree at Migron. And the people who were with them were about 600 men, including Ahijah, son of Ahituv, I- I- Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Heliah. I- I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> that'll show up on the Charlie Boyd out of context i'm sure uh, son of eli the priest of the lord at shiloh wearing an ephod and the people though they didn't, they didn't know where jonathan had gone within the passes by which jonathan sought to go over to the philistine garrison there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side the name of one was bazez and the other was sinna and one crag rose north in front of michmash that's where the Philistines are. The other on the south in front of Geba, that's where the Israelites, so you've got two mountains with a ravine in between. I'll show you a picture in just a minute. So just like in chapter 13, Jonathan takes the initiative, and really what we're seeing here uh, early on is that Jonathan has everything it takes to be king. Initiative, courage, faith, willingness to take risks, the ability to inspire. The sad thing is, Though, because of Saul's sin in the last chapter, Jonathan will never be king. He will never be any more than John the Baptist to Jesus. Still a great man, but he will never be king. He and his father, we're seeing, are two very different men. By faith, Jonathan is ready to attack again, while Saul is sitting passively in fear under a pomegranate tree, which is kind of like reminds me of him hiding in the baggage when this whole thing started. Um, but the verses I just read uh, tell us something else very important. Samuel has left Saul, but being the semi-religious man that Saul is, he's enlisted the help of Ahijah. And I want you to notice how much detail is given to identify his family line there in verse 2. because. When, in Old Testament scriptures especially, when you see this much detail, it's there for a reason. It's showing us something, it's just not telling us what the connection is. So what's the connection? Well, Ahijah is identified as the great-grandson of the defunct high priest Eli, relative of Ichabod. Uh, Do you remember what Ichabod's name means? It means the glory has departed. No glory in Israel. And so uh, Ichabod was born the day that his wicked uh, priest father Phineas and his wicked priest brother Hophni were killed in battle. The Ark of the Covenant had been brought out and it was taken captive by the Philistines. And when Eli hears that terrible news, he falls over dead on the spot and Yahweh declares on that day that Eli's family was disqualified from ever serving as priests in Israel. And yet, here is Saul using Ahijah from the family of Eli as the high priest. And we read later that Ahijah is dressed in the high priest's garment with a breastplate containing the Urim and Thummim, uh, through which God reveals his will uh, to Israel. Now, so are you seeing the picture? Here we've got a rejected king trying to discern God's will from the counsel of a rejected priest. This is not good. So while Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree drinking pina coladas next to no glory's nephew, Prince Jonathan is out doing the real work of the king. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, uh, uh, he says, uh, who are, they're, they're positioned on this rocky crag on one side, looking to the other side where the Philistines were, so you see it here, um, this, and those that's steep. Like, just imagine yourself walking along that little, that's called a wadi at the bottom. It's a dry riverbed. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer on one side, the Philistines are on the other side. The name of one side, one rocky crag is slippery. The other is thorny, meaning to attack the Philistines, you've got to go down one side and you've got to come back up to attack. It's not going to be easy. But he says, are you with me to his armor bearer? And the armor bearer says, using Dabo's words, I'm all in. You know? So uh, Jonathan's faith is amazing here. But he doesn't presume on Yahweh's grace. He doesn't treat Yahweh like a pagan god like Saul did back in chapter 13 when Saul was at Gilgal. Thinking like, if I just perform certain religious rituals, then God will do certain things for me. Now, Jonathan trusts God with reckless abandon, and yet he doesn't presume on God. Look at verse six. He says, let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised pagans. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. So in the face of all those soldiers going AWOL, And Saul, sitting passively, waiting under the pomegranate tree, Jonathan takes action, and he leaves the results to Yahweh, knowing full well that the uh, Philistine's superior strength in no way limits Yahweh's ability to to give a complete victory if he so desires. And with unselfish faith, he basically says, who knows uh, how God will decide to deliver his people? Who knows if he'll do it through us? but this is the right thing to do. Let's go see what God does. Now, I love that kind of God-centered faith that's not tainted by a personal agenda. And we're gonna come back to this at the end of the message. Jonathan's plan is simple, verse eight. He says, let's go over and we'll let them see us. And if they ask us to come up out of the ravine, we will know that Yahweh has given them into uh, our hands, it's, it's not a sophisticated strategy, but it's his plan, and sure enough, after Jonathan and his sidekick sneak up uh, uh, to the, uh, down, down into the ravine, and they're starting to come back up, some Philistine uh, uh, up at the top, lookouts, you know, spot them, and, and they start to mock them, and they say, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes in the ground, and they shout for them, come on up here, we'll teach you a thing or two, and at that point, uh, I, I can imagine these the, the lookouts, you know, just laughing and turning around and going back to camp to resume their poker game, because no way would anybody expect anyone to attack them by crossing over that steep ravine and coming up that side. That's just crazy. Well, that's all Jonathan needed to hear, and it's interesting. In contrast to Saul's self-centered focus on me at Gilgal, Jonathan says here, uh, that Yahweh has given the Philistines not into his hands, but into the hands of Israel. Jonathan had a kingdom perf- uh, perspective and passion, not a personal agenda. So they climb down Slippery and back up Thorny, and they, and they, they, they uh, attack the Philistines. It's a surprise attack. Throws them into confusion. They quickly, Jonathan and the armor bearer, kill uh, 20 uh, Philistine soldiers, and they take command of the outpost. And the main encampment of the Philistines in Michmash hears about the assault. And all Hades breaks loose at this point. Along with the news of Jonathan's victory, uh, Yahweh sends a great earthquake. And the Philistine army goes into full tilt panic. It's chaos. They're confused. They are scared to death and they start running for their lives. So Jonathan was right. Yahweh didn't need a nation equipped with swords and spears and chariots and horses to give his people victory. He didn't need a whole army, lots of army. He was right. Nothing can hinder Yahweh by saving by many or few. Now, when the panic broke out in the Philistine camp at Michmash, Saul's watchmen in Geba uh, see the chaos and they report it to Saul. And uh, Saul immediately asks Ahijah, the rejected priest, to bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And it's just like, this is deja vu all over again. I mean, you can imagine Saul's soldiers gasp in horror because you remember the last time the priest and Eli's family uh, took the Ark into battle. Not good, not good. But just then, the uproar increased and Saul tells Elijah to stand down and Saul immediately leads his men into battle and all of a sudden, all the men who had hidden themselves in holes and caves and wells and tombs, they come out and join the fight. And the text tells us too that the Hebrew traders uh, who were in the Philistine camp, um, turncoats who had aligned themselves with the Philistines, they begin fighting with Israel that day in chapter 14, verse 23 says, and Yahweh saved Israel that day. Great day, if only it was that simple. This is kind of a hinge point in the story because you could say it was a great day and it was also a lousy day. Uh, it's a great day because of the great victory in battle here. It's not a complete victory, it's the day's battle victory. They haven't won the war, but it's still a great day. But it's a lousy day because of what happens next. And you, you, you see this in the very next verse. You're gonna see that, a, that, that, uh, that, that, that victory is not always victory. Look at verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. That's a great day. And the battle uh, passed beyond to Beth Haven. In other words, the, 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 the battle's still going on, but they're chasing the Philistines who are retreating. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. Lousy day. Why? Because of what Saul does next. When Saul finally got up the courage to fight, when he finally got his men to get into the fight, he did something stupid. He laid an oath on his men saying, cursed is the man who eats food until evening. In other words, nobody could eat till after dark. And he says, nobody can eat food until I am avenged of my enemies. That's, what a narcissist. I mean, it, it, it's all about Saul. And again, we see this contrast between Saul and Jonathan, his son, The oath was a terrible burden to place on his men who had fought all day in hand-to-hand combat, which takes enormous energy, and this declared fast might sound religious, might score high on being tough-sounded, but in reality, it's abusive, and in the end, it would disable Israel from a full and decisive victory that day. In the meantime, Jonathan, who had continued to fight in the aftermath of his secret mission, He wasn't around to hear his father's uh, self-imposed oath on the army, and Jonathan had not eaten all day, so in the heat of battle, as he's pursuing the retreating Philistines, he comes across a honeycomb in the forest. He takes his spear, sticks it into the honeycomb, and, and, and he eats the honey that's on the butt of his spear. The carbs give him instant energy, and he's able to continue fighting with Uh, with renewed strength at that point. But one of the men who had started the day fighting with Saul sees Jonathan eating honey and tells him about the oath. And Jonathan openly criticizes his dad and he says that, that Saul has troubled Israel and because of that stupid oath, Israel would not fully destroy the Philistine army. Verse 29, then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how bright my eyes have become because I tasted just a little honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Now, by the way, sometime after this, uh, Jonathan wrote his best-selling Honey and Health trilogy. Uh, There's Honey for Health. You can see it's a little bit older, dated cover there, but a complete guide to one of nature's greatest life-giving foods. And then that was followed by uh, the Honey Power, The Miracles of Honey and Its Amazing Health Benefits by Jonathan Barsall. And then uh, he finally finished with, he, with The Honey Companion, uh, Natural Recipes and Remedies for Health, Beauty, and Home. So uh, you might want to pick one of those up on Amazon if you'd if you like. They're still around after all these years. So uh, even though Israel pushed the Philistines uh, from Micmash all the way to Ajalon, Ajalon Um, It's not all the way to the coast. You can see just up there in the left-hand corner, that little blue, that's the Mediterranean Sea. They pushed him uh, pretty much out of the main part of Israel, where that circle is, uh, almost all the way back to the coast. But Israel had to stop the pursuit out of sheer exhaustion, and the battle ends in a draw. The Philistines went home with their tails between the legs, but that's the point. They still had tails and legs But this imposed restriction of food in the battle had an even greater impact, negative impact, on the armies of Israel. Because the men were famished at the end of the day, and they pounced on the spoils of livestock left behind by the uh, Philistines. And they began killing and eating the livestock without taking care to drain the blood out of the carcasses, which was forbidden, strictly forbidden in the Mosaic Uh, law you never eat uh, a rare steak not even medium rare steak no blood well Saul hears about this and he has enough scruples to know how wrong this is and so he commands the men to stop eating and that evening he has a huge stone rolled into camp where the animals could be properly slaughtered and laid aside so that the blood would drain out before the meat is cooked and then Saul remember he's a semi-religious man Saul turns the huge stone into a foundation for an altar that he builds to Yahweh. That's that's a good thing. Now, uh, with his army fed and re-energized, Saul wants to attack the retreating Philistines by night and just totally wipe them out, which is a good thing. His troops are still exhausted, even though they've eaten, it's nighttime, and they're like, okay, do whatever seems right to you. (laughs) Isn't that interesting that they would say that? Uh, That's not exactly the enthusiastic response that Jonathan got from his all-in armor-bearer. But then uh, 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 um, Isaiah, the priest, uh, advises Saul, I think we should draw near to God and ask him what we should do, which is not a bad advice from a rejected priest. Saul agrees, and he asks Yahweh, should I go after the Philistines? But God doesn't answer him, which is a clear sign that there's sin in the camp. Everybody knows that. So Saul is enraged. How dare anyone do anything that would prevent Yahweh from speaking to me? And so Saul, the rejected king, gets very self-righteous, and he declares that whoever is responsible for Yahweh's silence will be put to death, even if it's my own son, Jonathan. Never expecting that it is his own son, Jonathan. And Jonathan's like, thanks, Dad. And the troops say in verse 40, well... Do what seems good to you. And you feel this distance uh, opening up between Saul and his army. As it turns out, Jonathan is outed by God as the culprit, who, who although unwittingly, um, he ate the honey because he didn't know about Saul's self-righteous, stupid oath. And Jonathan, though, he boldly steps forward and said, I'm the, I'm the man, um, confesses what he, did, what he did and stands ready to die. Now, God did not out Jonathan to get him into trouble. There was something else going on here. Saul orders Jonathan's execution. Saul believes that a promise is a promise is a promise. And a decision is a decision is a decision. And to change your mind on something like this is a sign of weakness. I mean, the one thing that matters is his victory over the uncircumcised Philistines. And everything should be sacrificed for that, even his own son. But at this point, the men can't take it anymore. And they get in Saul's face and they defy him as king. And they say in verse 45, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? No way. Over our dead bodies, they make their own solemn oath. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one uh, hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day day. And so we go on to hear that the people ransomed Jonathan meaning that they paid some kind of price for breaking a vow to Saul. And then verse 46 says then Saul went went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went back to their own place, no more fighting after that, the battle ends in a draw. And then look at this. This is really strange. Verse 47, when Saul had taken the kingship Of Israel over, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, uh, against the Philistines, and wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of all those who plundered them. Verse 52 says, And there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he drafted him into his army. Now, isn't that strange to you that at the end of the story of Saul and the mighty Philistine army, Saul is distanced from his men. His son, Jonathan, outshines him and is more highly regarded than Saul. And we definitely feel like Jonathan should be king and not Saul. And we see Saul going home with his tail between his legs. He gives up the fight. He shamed himself in front of his men. And there is no decisive victory over the Philistine. It is a really lousy day. But then the chapter concludes with this glowing historical report saying that Saul was a valiant warrior and he defeated many of Israel's enemies. I mean, it's so positive. It's so pro-Saul. Like, how do you make sense of that? I mean, we're in the second step of the downward spiral of the saga of Saul and we see him making one stupid decision after another and then we read this extremely positive summary of his reign. What's up with that? Well, let me come at it like this. Last week, I was flipping channels, and I ran across an old movie from the 1970s. It was a movie about Patton, General Patton, a film about World War II, George S. Patton, played by George C. Scott. The movie won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year in 1970. I liked it so much, uh, you know, I was watching in PBS, or I don't know where it was, but the guy comes on at the end and says, hey, there's a made-for-TV movie in 1986 called The Last Days of Patton, so I looked that up, finally found it on Amazon Prime, and so I watched that, it was also very good. Now, unquestionably, Patton was a great military genius and strategist, and he fought in almost every major American conflict in the 20th century. In World War II, he led armies from North Africa to Sicily, and there's no question that we might not have won World War II, or it would have taken a whole lot longer without Patton's race across France, where he liberated over 12,000 French towns and killed over a million and a half Nazis. He, he rescued doomed soldiers at Bastogne during the Wintry Battle of the Bulge, and then he pushed right on into Germany, saving thousands of American and allied lives by helping bring a swift end to the war. He volunteered the 3rd Army to make that drive to Bastogne when no one else would do it to help the American forces there that were surrounded by the Germans. In fact, this is interesting, Karen's father, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Patrick Moran, was in the 101st Airborne. He flew into Normandy on a glider behind enemy lines early morning of the D-Day invasion on his 27th birthday and uh, Karen's dad fought from Normandy all the way to Hitler's eagle's nest, and he was there in, in Bastogne in the Battle of the Bulge, and he said if it were not for Patton, they would have all been wiped out because surrender was not an option for those men. But for Patton, getting to Bastogne in the dead of winter proved to be nearly impossible. It had rained and snowed so much that his army was bogged down and behind schedule to get to Bastogne in time to rescue the troops hunkered down there. And the weather was predicted to get even worse. So Patton, being the semi-religious man that he was, called the chaplain in and said to him, Chaplain, I want you to write a prayer. I want you to publish a prayer for good weather. I'm tired of these soldiers having to fight mud and floods and snow as well as Germans. See if we can't get God to work on our side." Well, uh, the weather got better. Uh, it, it worked, seemed to work, and, and, and he moved on from victory to victory. But being a great military strategist didn't mean he had a solid character. He, this man could not control his tongue. He criticized our allies and their generals. He was constantly saying things he should have never said, He stubbornly refused to obey orders, which got him in trouble with General Eisenhower on several occasions. He was called out many times by the American press, especially when he berated a soldier in front of his men who was having a breakdown, a meltdown from PTSD, which wasn't known as a psychological problem back then. He used so much profanity that they say it still hangs like a cloud over Europe to this day. I mean, he cheated on his wife. She was faithful to him through thick and thin to the last days of his life. By the end of the war, though he maintained his rank, he was moved downward from one command to the next, each step down with less and less influence. Patton was a mix of good and not so good. He was a great man in terms of his contribution to history, but not a great man in terms of his character. You could put it like this, as to the judgment of history, he was one of the most successful military generals of all time. Yes, a flawed man, like, as, as we all are, but, but the judgment of history focuses on achievements and accomplishments and, and contributions and, success, and successes. For the most part, that's how General Patton is remembered. Remembered. But in, and, and in this story, verses 47 and 48, we see how the judgment of history remembers Saul. Here's how Dale Ralph Davis lays it out in his wonderful commentary. If you can only get one commentary on 1 Samuel, get his commentary. It's absolutely wonderful, easy to read, pastoral. It's really good. He says, Davis says, history's judgment is the external human calculation of a person's life and work. It's what folks can observe. By such a standard, Saul made his mark and made it well. Whether he turned east to Moab, southeast to Edom, northeast to Zobah, west of the, uh, to Philistia, Philistia, he succeeded in war and defeated his enemies and delivered Israel. But David says the judgment of history does not have the decisive verdict. The vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history, but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, whether political or military, but covenant. And then he says this, Yahweh is not looking for winners, he's looking for disciples. Not looking for winners, he's looking for disciples. That's the reason for the negative undertow in chapters 13 and 14. Saul has begun to fail at the point of covenant in that he did not submit to the covenant of God. And for the Bible, covenant disobedience is, uh, covenant obedience is, means much more, far more than vocational achievement. So Saul's downward spiral into greater and greater stupidity and disobedience and his military successes are both true. Saul was, looking at the whole picture, a courageous, uh, militarily successful king. No reason to deny that. No reason to hide that. But only one assessment really matters, and that is the verdict of the judge of history. Because it's possible to be a historical success and a spiritual failure. So just like Patton, Saul was a mix of good and not so good. He was a mix of self-centered, self-promotion, and successful military strategy. He was a mix of rebellion and religion. He was a mix of harsh, abusive rules and passive piety. He was a mix of knowing God's word and obeying it when it was convenient, but ignoring God's word when he wanted to do what seemed right to him. Saying, well, okay, 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 well, why, why, why would God bless Saul with all these victories when he was such a mess. Well, like I said, not every victory is a victory. When you are passively indifferent toward God or in out-and-out rebellion against God, but things go well for you, never think that God is blessing you because of you. When you disobey God, never think that whatever good that happens to you means that God doesn't care about your sin and disobedience. No, The good may be for someone else entirely. Saul's victories were not for Saul. Saul's successes were for Israel. Yahweh was keeping his covenant promises to Israel. And Yahweh was winning great battles for his people. And he was doing it through Saul. Not every victory is a victory. Saul teaches us that. And not every tragic life is a tragedy if... It is lived in faithful obedience to God in the circumstance he brings into our lives. Jonathan teaches us that. Again, as David says, God is not looking for winners. He's looking for disciples. So what's the passage about after all that? Well, the story is one more chapter in the downward spiral of the saga of Saul. And as we saw last week, it's showing us how by being off one or two degrees, we can end up miles away from where God intends us to be. It is showing us that not every victory is a true victory. It's showing us that God isn't looking for winners, he's looking for disciples. And Saul looked like a winner, but Jonathan was the true disciple. Okay, so second question, what do we learn about God and life and faith in this story? Well, tucked away back at the beginning of this story is a statement about faith that I have had on my mind for two weeks now. Go back to verse six. Again, remember the Philistines are on one side of these two jagged mountain ranges, ravine in between. Israel uh, is on the other. And uh, it's, for days, it's been a waiting game. And Jonathan and his armor bearer sneak out to the, uh, to the camp. And they're looking across the ravine at the Philistine camp. And Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, Let's just call him Jake because I'm getting tired of saying armor bearer. So so John says to Jake, come, let's go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised pagans. It may be that Yahweh will work for us for nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. Now, the NAS and the NIV and the NLT translations use the word perhaps here instead of it may be. And of course, they mean the same thing, but I really like the word perhaps, so I'm going to go with that. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised pagans. Perhaps the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. Let me tell you, there is so much good theology stuffed in that one verse. Theology that if Saul had understood it, it would have been him rather than Jonathan leading the charge that day. And this story teaches us an important lesson about faith what it is and how it works. And from verse 6, it's what I call the perhaps of faith. The perhaps of faith. Now you remember back in chapter 13, Jonathan took the initiative to knock off the Philistine garrison, which caused all this mess with the Flintstones, I mean with the Philistines at the beginning, and now he does it again. He takes the initiative, he wants to attack again, so he says, "Let's go across to the outpost of the uncircumcised pagans. Perhaps God will work for us. Perhaps God will help us. Perhaps God will give us the victory. And he says, perhaps. Why? Because in a situation like this, how do you know? Well, how you know is you make yourself available. You put yourself at God's disposal. Faith is, is seeing an opportunity and then you start moving in that direction. But it's not like you know for certain what God is going to do or not do. You don't. You don't always know. Jonathan has received no definitive word from the Lord about this. He doesn't know what Yahweh will do, but in a situation like this, you make yourself available, you put yourself at God's disposal, and you start walking towards the target, and that's the perhaps of faith. Now, of course, the perhaps of faith rests on the conviction of faith. What is that? Well, it's your theology of God. It's knowing who God is and knowing how how God works. That's what fuels the perhaps of faith. Jonathan knows that God is all-powerful, and he has a firm conviction of the omnipotence of God. He knows God is not limited by our resources. He knows that God is not limited by our lack of, He knows that God is not limited by our weakness. He's not limited by what seems to be impossible circumstances. He's not limited by what the doctors say is terminal. And because Jonathan has the conviction that God is all powerful and in no way limited by any circumstances, listen, then Jonathan's faith was not limited by what seemed to be an impossibly dangerous, deadly situation. But, as I said, he did not presume upon the Lord. That's built into the perhaps of faith. You see, there's a difference between faith and presumption. Yes, faith does trust God for good outcomes. Faith trusts God to work for us, to do things for us we can't do for ourselves. But faith doesn't presume that God will do something for us just because we believe he will. That is not faith. Faith is not believing that God will give you what you want. Faith is not believing that if you just ask God for something without doubting, don't say that out loud, don't doubt. You gotta speak it into existence. No, 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 no. Faith is not if if you want God to do something for you and you don't doubt that God has to give you what you ask for, no. You see, the perhaps of faith factors in the freedom of God. The perhaps of faith rests on two things, on the power of God and the freedom of God to do what He seems be, be, what seems to him best, to be best. It requires faith in both directions faith and power, faith and freedom. You cannot take for granted that God will give you what you ask for just because you believe. You really, 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 you really, really believe he will. No. We see the same thing in the Old Testament story from the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar ordered everyone in his empire to bow down to a golden image uh, that he set up. And if you don't bow down, he's going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage. He orders them to bow or burn and he gives them a second chance and remember what they said? They basically said, O king, we don't need a second chance. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand one way or the other, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See it? God's all-powerful. That's the conviction of faith. We have the firm, con, firm conviction that he can deliver us out of your hand, but if not, that's the perhaps of faith. If not, we're willing to die. Same thing. The perhaps of faith rests on both the power of God and the freedom of God to do what he deems best You know, you know that you know that you know that you know that God is all powerful and nothing is impossible for him, but in certain circumstances, when you have no clear word from God, when you don't know what his will is, by faith, you make yourself available, you put yourself at his disposal, you start moving in a direction where it looks like God is working, but you trust God's freedom, to do what he deems is best. And of course, the supreme example of that kind of faith is Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me He knew his father in heaven had all the power necessary to save him from the cross. He could have called a thousand angels, a legion of angels down to save him. He knew that was certainly possible and he had the freedom to pray and ask God to do different if that would be best. But he also trusted in his father's freedom to do what had to be done to secure our salvation and that's why he prayed, but not my will, but thy will be done. He had been walking. He had set his face towards Jerusalem, walking towards the cross. Perhaps there was another way, but if not, he would keep moving forward because his father could be trusted to do what is best. You follow me here? Listen, I am begging you on the clear teaching of Scripture once and for all, drive a stake in the ground and give up this false, name it and claim it, word of faith, speak it into existence by faith, teaching that turns God, basically turns God into a genie that if you rub him and rub him, rub and rub and really, really, really believe that he'll give you what you want, that is not biblical faith. That's you thinking, if I just have enough faith, then God has has to do what I want him to do. No, 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 no. Biblical faith rests on God's power and God's freedom to do what he knows is best. Biblical faith rests on God's power and God's freedom to do what he knows. That's the perhaps of faith. I wonder, is there some area in your life where you're praying about something and you're experiencing disappointment and frustration because it's not happening, and you're questioning yourself like, "I, I, I feel like I have the faith, I feel like I have enough faith. God doesn't want you to live like that. Listen, the perhaps of faith doesn't take the glow out of asking God to do something you need him to do, but it does take the disappointment and frustration out of praying for something, and God doesn't give you what you ask for and you're ready to throw in the towel. The perhaps a faith strengthens your faith because you have the freedom to ask God for whatever you want. But you also rest in God's freedom to do what he deems best. Now, several weeks back, I told you about the possibility of our being able to expand the ministry of Fellowship Greenville to the Adams Mill YMCA property. We ask you to pray with us this one question. Lord, is this what you want for Fellowship Greenville. So let me apply what we've learned today about God and life and faith to the circumstances we find ourselves in now. What do we know? We know that God wants us, as, all, as he does all gospel-centered churches, he, we know that God wants us to advance the gospel in the upstate and, and beyond. And we know that because the word of God in Jesus' great commission tells us to advance the gospel, make disciples, and God shows us what that looks like and the church planting ministry of the Apostle Paul and the other uh, other apostles. We know, also know, that God has brought you. He's brought all of us here. And he continues to bring more people here. And we've told you on several occasions that there's 900 more people here this year at this time than there was last year at this time. Now, we know that based on his word, that when God gives the increase, he also gives us the responsibility to care for and disciple those he's given us to shepherd. And that means that somehow, somehow we have to create space in order to do that. And as I said before, we looked at building another auditorium on the back of the property, which is still a possibility. But while we were investigating that possibility, the YMCA property popped up. We weren't looking for it. It came to us. We heard about it the elders prayed about it we made ourselves available to the possibility and we started moving in that direction and in consultation with others we made an offer and the offer was accepted 27 acres for uh, uh, 27 acres and and a building for five and a half million dollars and right now we're kind of in the middle of that 120 due diligence uh, 120 day due diligence period meeting with architects, looking at drawings, waiting for the construction company to give us an idea of how much it's gonna cost to renovate that building so it could be used as a church and make it look like Fellowship Greenville. We have had no definitive word from the Lord as to what he will do. That's why we are continuing to pray and continuing to ask you to pray, Lord, is this what you want for Fellowship Greenville? Perhaps... It is what he wants for us, and we know that he's powerful enough to give us the space that we need to care for and disciple those that he continues to bring here, but we have no definitive word as to exactly how he's gonna do that. But we have this opportunity in front of us, and we're moving in that direction. We keep moving by faith, praying and discussing and looking for where God is working so we can join him there. Perhaps he will bring all this together, and it will become very clear at some point Hopefully very soon, <laughs> before our, our time runs out. But if not, if not, he's capable of providing for us in some other way. That's the perhaps of faith. And that's what an authentic, real walk of faith looks like. Trusting in both the power of God and the freedom of God to work for our good and for His glory in each and every circumstance he brings into our life. That's the perhaps of faith. Would you pray with me? Father, it's so exciting to to dig into these Old Testament stories and have your Holy Spirit bring bring these stories to life in our experiences, in our personal lives, and in, the, in our ministry lives, and in the life of this church. And so, God, thank you for what you've shown us today from the life of Saul and Jonathan and, 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 and how you are so faithful to keep your covenant promises to Israel and you keep, mo- you keep moving history forward towards the coming of the ultimate king, Savior King, Jesus Thank you for showing how us how all this is playing out. Thank you for showing us how uh, it, it looks to walk in faith. And God, we do continue to pray that you would uh, uh, show us if this, is, if this YMCA thing, if, is this what you want for us? If so, as we continue to walk in that direction, we pray that you would make it more and more clear and we'll be careful to give you the glory no matter how it turns out, in Jesus' name, amen.